Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with the industry's biggest names. I'm Alan Seals, and our guest today is Neil Brennan. Neil is a comedian and a writer who has decided to bring his show to the off-Broadway audience. It's actually been extended through November 21st, 2021 at the Cherry Lane Theater here in New York due to popular demand. I saw it. It's freaking hilarious. You have to get yourself down to the West Village to see this as soon as you can. If you don't know who Neil is, check out Three Mics on Netflix. It's his last critically acclaimed special that was filmed and put out there for the world to see. Just phenomenal. He's got a bunch of Emmys. He's also a director. He's a creative consultant and on-air correspondent at Comedy Central's Daily Show. I mean, it's just kind of insane who this guy is, and he speaks to us. So before we get into it, please leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening now. Find me on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast. And now everybody, please enjoy this episode with Neil Brennan. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Today's guest is a three-time Emmy-nominated writer, director, producer, and stand-up comedian. He's currently a creative consultant and on-air correspondent on Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. He served as executive producer on Chris Rock's latest stand-up special, Chris Rock Tambourine, and as a director on comedian Michelle Wolf's recent HBO special, Michelle Wolf, Nice Lady. He co-wrote the cult classic Half-Baked and co-created The Chappelle Show with Dave Chappelle and his critically acclaimed one-man show Three Mics enjoyed a sold-out off-Broadway run in New York City in 2016 with John Legend serving as producer. He's back in the New York City scene with a new one-man show called Unacceptable, which has just been extended through November 21st down at the Cherry Lane Theater in the West Village in New York. Neil Brennan, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for having me, man. (laughs) <laughs> I hope that uh, the bio was okay. I shortened like this giant three-page thing that I originally yeah. had written out. No, I, I, uh, no, that's that that gets at it. Well, when you look back at your career, what do you what do you think? I guess okay. I've never asked this before, but it's first for everything. What do you think people know you the most for versus what do you want them to know you the most for doing? Uh, I think they know me for Chappelle Show. Um. Uh, and I think, and I don't, I'm not, I don't mind being known for that. I mean, I think the the answer would be like, but that's not who I am. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that is who I, I mean, I would say three mics and Chappelle show are the two things I'm best known for. And, and then Chappelle show in the lead. Um, cause it's like a juggernaut. Right. Right. But that's, so that's behind the scenes. And, and I saw your show last night. 
down in down at Cherry Lane and laughed laughed my ass off. It was oh, great. incredible. It was raw. It was truthful. And I I love when when comedians bring themselves into it and and there's a message throughout the whole thing in general. And we're gonna get to all of that. But part of what you said in the show was was that you're you have this constant sort of internal struggle between feeling comfortable enough with yourself to be in front of the camera, to be uh-huh. in, in the limelight, right? And I, I I wonder looking back, when you look back at at things that you have done and co-created and written and you know, half baked and Chappelle show and all of the other writing and you're you're a writer for Nickelodeon uh, and all that, right? So you do all this writing behind the scenes. Now you started you started, I think, in more recent years, gotten in front of the camera. Yeah, like the last thirteen years. They you know what they say, don't don't start performing until you're thirty one. <laughs> So I I took that that old showbiz adage, and uh, and 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 am doing it to death. Um, yeah. So I'm sorry. I'm I'm not sure. I kind of cut you off. Oh no! I was just I was just thinking. Uh, or what I was getting at was um, when you were younger, what did you want to do, and did you eventually want to be in front of the camera, and did you have like an anxiety or sort of that voice in your head saying? I'm just going to be behind the scenes. It's safer. I think I always wanted to be, I was always funny. So I think I wanted to be a comedian. And then like in a grade school, high school, my brother was a comedian, is a comedian named Kevin Brennan. And so I would come up here to New York. I was in, grew up in Philly, would come up here in New York to New York on the weekends and hang out in comedy clubs. And it was like, you know, and as incredible as, as, you would imagine like a high school kid in 1988, you know, watching, watching, um, uh, people that would become legends kind of figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, it's like Ray Romano and John Stewart. And, and then, then I came up here and then I, so then I was like, I got to figure out a way to get to New York, uh, for, you know, school for college. So I applied to NYU film school and got in. And, um, so then I was here going to film school and started working the door to the comedy club and the other, you know, and at that point I'm 18 and the, the only other guy my age was Dave, who was, you know, Chappelle, who was like, you know, even at that point, a great comedian and doing well. And then, you know, Romano, Stewart, uh, David Tell, um, Louie, Mark Marin, and those guys, even at a young age, they were younger, but they were always intimidating. They, uh, to, to, they were intimidating. They were not to, I think they were intimidating to everybody or most people. So I was intimidated by it and kind of got like, okay, I'm not. And then told myself I wasn't that right. Mm-hmm. Told myself like, well, I, I can never be them. And so but would pitch jokes to people like Dave, especially. And some of the jokes I pitched him worked. And I was like, well, I don't know. so I always kept it in the back of my mind. And then I did it once. I did it actually once when I was 18 stand up, did it when I was 18, didn't go well, 23 did go well, but then we did half baked. And I just thought, ah, I'll just be a writer. And then did it again when I was 29, did it a little bit during Chappelle show. And then 
really started again in 2007. So it was a thing that it was a it was a cross between desire and necessity in that I kind of, I wanted to do it, but also like when the TV show ended, I was like, when Chappelle show ended, I was like, well, I'm not gonna, I don't, that doing a TV show is so hard. And the idea of doing it by myself was, uh, it just seemed, it was like not, didn't seem fun at all. Um, doing it with somebody's very, uh, doing it with somebody's fun and really difficult and doing it by myself. Uh, I don't have the narcissism. I don't think. <laughs> well, what happened to talent, maybe it's just like narcissism and like, no, I'm a genius and I can do it. And like I, as I mentioned in the show last night, I got to write and rewrite and rewrite and like grind. Yeah. What happened to film school? Oh, uh, um, I, I just didn't like film students. <laughs> I mean, that's really what happened. Like, Talk about narcissism. Uh, yeah. It, well, I mean, they, they were so silly. Like they would call me. I remember they would call me uh, and they would call me an action fiend because I liked Die Hard. It's like, it's a great movie. Yeah. Well, you're an action guy. And they were watching like Vin Benders and stuff. And of course, now the wrench reality kicked in. And like, I remember the main guy who was like constantly watching Vim Benders. Last I heard from him, he was uh, editing footage for the Mets, the New York Mets. <laughs> Not even the Met. Not even the Metropolitan Opera. <laughs> the New York Mets. So it's like, okay, so how that, thank you for your, pre- your pretense. Thanks for shaming me full time. Um, and uh, sorry, you know, sorry, sorry that you eventually had to live in reality. Well, then, as someone who has never started to have the idea of writing a TV show, nor successfully taken that idea to fruition, talk me through how you originally started to, I guess, well, where did the idea for Half-Baked come from? And then how did you get it picked up? And did that lead to Chappelle's show? Yeah, uh, in, in, in a... In a, in a, in a it was formative, but it didn't, I wouldn't say it led to it. Well, it did lead to it, but in a, not in an unexpected way. So, uh, I was writing for, as you mentioned, all that. And I wrote a Keenan and Kel episode and I wrote for MTV singled out. So I was living in LA 21, 22 and you know, for my age successful. Um, but, uh, and then Dave was, in had been in like Nutty Professor and done really well and was in Con Air and had done really well and was kind of on the come up. And uh, we saw him train spotting mm-hmm. and he was like, You can make a weed movie, uh, you can do a weed version of that. And I was like, Yeah, like you know, absolute small talk. And uh, and uh, we and then a couple months later, he calls me and say and said, "Hey, if Universal calls you, uh, tell them we're writing a weed movie together." So I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I had written so the, the side backstory. I had written a spec script, just a movie, and it had gotten to a producer producer's office at Universal. 
Uh, I had a meeting with that woman. I was funny in that meeting. She introduced me to her boss, a guy named Bob Simons, who was a producer, Robert Simons. And I was funny in that meeting. The script that I wrote wasn't very funny, but I was funny, right? So, um, so then a week later, Dave's in the guy's office and they go, you have any ideas? And he's like, yeah, I'm writing a weed movie. And, and they go, uh, with who? And he goes, uh, don't worry, you never heard, heard, heard of him. <laughs> and uh, they're like, no, seriously, who? And he's like, I'm telling you, you've never heard of him. I mean, who? And he goes, Neil Brennan? And they're like, Neil was just here. We love Neil. Da, 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 da. We can't wait to hear it. So then Dave calls and goes, hey, if Universal calls, tell him to write a weed movie. So then Universal called called and said, are you guys writing a weed movie? And I was like, yes. And they said, when can you pitch it? And I, stalling for time, I just said, in 30 days. 30 <laughs> days time. And um, so then thirty, then on day 29, we outlined it. <laughs> margarine hotel, I'm not even kidding. Pitch it the next day. And it was like a funny pitch. And two 23-year-olds, good chemistry. This guy's on the come up. This, like... You know, it was, they were like, yeah, we'll give you, I think they gave us a hundred grand. So to write it and we wrote it in, uh, March, April. And then we were shooting in July. Wow. It was like, and they kept saying like, guys, you know, this never happens. We were like, never happens to you. (laughs) Happens to us every time. So, uh, (laughs) so, uh, so the movie comes out, and I mentioned this in my Mark Twain speech for Dave on the on the Mark Twain uh, prize thing, um, that we opened against um, As Good As It Gets, Goodwill Hunting, um, I want to say Goldeneye. Yeah, it's a and, James uh, Bond movie. And yeah. also um, Titanic. <laughs> so, 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 yeah. Didn't do great, but and then it became like a cult hit on uh, VHS and then DVD. VHS <laughs> all in. Um, and um, so, but then me and Dave were sort of like didn't because we didn't really have a good experience. We just kind of got railroaded by the process. Um, we kind of were like cold on each other, and then there was also some personal stuff where like his father was dying and I was just not a good friend. And, uh, and, um, I was more like, we need to work. And I'm just kind of like being, just not showing him any empathy at all. And, uh, so we kind of chilled out for a couple of years and then, um, sorry about the noise. Good. Um, we chilled out for a couple of years and then kind of linked back up. And he said, I wanted, we should do a uh, Playboy After Dark, which was a show from the 60s and probably a little bit of the 70s, starring Hugh Hefner. I've heard of that guy. Who was a, as I said in the Mark Twain speech, who was a magazine publisher and um, quasi sex trafficker. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, so, so then that, that, that was the idea and it slowly became, it just became like, I have an idea for this. I have an idea for this. Hey, what if we did this? And it just, we just realized like, this is a sketch show. And the way Half Baked influenced it was we were 
real control freaks about it. Meaning because half-baked didn't look like we wanted, didn't just wasn't what we wanted, we were held and didn't work. We were hell-bent on making sure that every piece of fabric, every wallpaper, every every single thing went through one of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite lines, uh, I was telling somebody the other day, there was a actors in a sketch and uh, I went up to her in between takes. She was in a sketch with Dave and I went up to her between takes and I was like, hey, um, would you mind the line is da, 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 da. and she goes like, I can say whatever I want. And uh, Dave heard her and goes, lady, you just said that to the worst person on earth. <laughs> <laughs> What happened? <laughs> Nothing. It's just like, don't tell me you can't say whatever you want. Like, he was just saying it like, I mean, when he said worst person on earth, he was talking about me, but he was kind of talking about both of us. Like, no, we need you to say what we need you to say. Like, so I don't, you, well, I don't know who told you you can say whatever you want. I don't know what school you went to where you thought you could say whatever you want, but uh, it's a professional set. You can't say whatever you want. You have to say what the writer said, you should say, and also the exec producers. Who are us? <laughs> well, tell Meryl Streep she needs to get her shit well, together. Yeah, that, that was she'll never. That was the last sketch Meryl Streep did for us. Thank right, you, right. as as it as it should be. Mm-hmm. And then uh, take me back to then the the beginning because I know as a as a child you had a rough a, a bit of a rough childhood and you touch on this in your in your show a little bit unacceptable. Uh huh. So talk to us, I guess, about, uh, you know, give us the summary sort of of how your childhood, what it was and how it shaped the person you have now become, which is um, a very funny guy, but it's covering a, a, a lot of, of hurt. I don't even think it's covering it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice way. Of, I think it's coexisting. <laughs> there you go. Um, uh, I'm, one, I'm the youngest of 10 children. And my father was an alcoholic and abusive physically and emotionally. And, uh, and 10 kids is, is too many kids, but I will say that my brothers and sisters were all very good to me. Um, unfortunately the way humanity set up is you need, really need your parents to be good to you if they're there. Um, so, and my mom did, did her best. I mean, like truly did her best, but just didn't, she's from, my parent, I mentioned in the show, my dad's one of 13, twin dies when he's like five. Mm-hmm. Mother is sort of ashamed of him. The rest of it's like my father, they put my dad up for adoption and let another family come and take him for a test drive. And they brought him back. <laughs> That's not I funny. That I should mention that. You I, should I should mention that. I'll mention it from, from, uh, from tonight on. There you go. No, it sounds like a joke. Um, and my mom was one of seven, two of them died. Then my mother's mother dies when my mother's a toddler. It's all just Irish immigrant shit, right? It's all Angela's ashes, black and white. They're born in the depression. My mother's born in 1933. My dad's born in 1930. So in some ways I'm, it's not even, it's like, I'd say it's like, there's a generational divide. It's bigger than that. It's like three generations divided. Yeah, in terms of like how the world I live in versus the world they live in and were born into are just it's almost like Martian 
differences. Um, so emotionally, they they weren't, especially my dad, just weren't very, couldn't really provide the nutrients. And I remember my dad telling me at one point, like, I, I remember they said, uh, my dad said that, like, when I was in school, I read in, in social studies class that all a parent needs to provide is food and clothing. And I was like, you know, that's, that's what the government provides. <laughs> like you gotta, you gotta do more. But from <laughs> his point of view, that's all he, that's what he, that's what he thought the rules of engagement were. Right. Right. And in some ways I had the thought the other day that it's almost like woke culture, the way I feel about woke culture. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and like where they just change the rules and I'm like, right. what? I gotta, but, and, and meanwhile, I'm like, you guys are being unreasonable, but uh, my, as far as I'm concerned, my demands of my father are totally reasonable, you know? Right. Um, so just that, you know, it was a, it was a, it was chaotic, a lot of violence and a lot of yelling. Well, I, I'm sorry to hear that. And, uh, you go into it a little bit too in the show that are, I forget if it was the show uh, on the way home from the show. I was listening to a bunch of podcasts with you on them too. So I forget what I, what was in podcast form and what was in yeah. show form, but you had, at one point you mentioned that, uh, that your parents didn't get any affection. So they didn't know how to send, how yeah, to that's share it with you. I, that's what I said. I said that in the show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like that's what I'm saying. It's like, I have these expectations. Meanwhile, it's like, uh, where do you, where, how would they know? Where would they have heard? Where would they, where would they have learned that? You know, right. So I am. I I'm I'm in a. You know, we're all we all go through cycles in terms of psychologically and holding people responsible. I'm in like a in a empathetic mode right now. Where I'm like, well, they. You know, I'm being magnanimous about, but other times I've been like angry. You know, of course. Well, I think it's it's. What is it? Sort of. There's multiple stages of of all sorts of emotional reactions. Like the what was it? Five stages of grief or whatnot. Yes. But but like you went through trauma, like legit pro- forms of trauma. So yeah, you're processing them differently, and there's grief involved, and you've got nine other siblings that are all processing it in different ways. And obviously, you you turn to the dark side. You went into comedy. Yes. And, and that helps you. That helps you deal with things. Uh, what is it about? What is it about comedy that uh, allows you to? Is it is it a coping mechanism? Is it an avoidance mechanism? Is it sort of a combination of everything? I would tend to say coping more than avoidance, uh, probably because it's more favorable. <laughs> but, but also, like, I'm not really avoiding that much on stage. No, you're not. That's what I'm saying. So it's like, is it? A, is it? A, is it? That's why I'd say it's more coping than about. I actually say in the show, I might be too misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Like nobody fucking says that. Like no guy ever goes, I don't know. I might just have bad baseline opinions about women that prevent me from being a good husband or boyfriend. I don't, I, I think uh, I'm probably being like overly difficult on myself in that regard, but it's, but you know, maybe I'm not. So, uh, I would say comedy is more about coping. And I mean, that's, there was a, I, somebody said, I'm like you were, I'm like, did somebody say this or did I hear it on a podcast or did, did I say it or did I dream <laughs> it? Um, that, uh, 
most comedians have sad mothers who they needed to cheer up. Ah. Yeah. And it's, and it's kind of true, I think. Because, I, I mean, I can say firsthand, like, my mother, I was like, you know, I had to kind of emotionally support my mother through. She, had, she would have, like, small kind of nervous breakdown thingies and stuff that I needed to uh, support her on. I can relate to that. I, I've, I like to be the, the jokester and, and the serious and, and alleviate serious tension with something funny. And my family structure is very similar. Yeah. I mean, that's not, it would stand a reason, you know? Yeah. Yeah. God, I wonder what, uh, oh man, I wonder what, if Freud could see modern therapy now, tell me about the relationship with your mother. Well, I mean, I look, Freud's one of the greatest cokeheads we've ever had. <laughs> and a uh, guy had some good ideas. <laughs> I was onto something. Of course. Well, of course he was. I mean, everyone's got to have a crazy idea and some of them pan out every now and then. <laughs> so you go into, into writing first. And well, you're saying that, you know, that it's a coping mechanism. Comedy is, and on stage, you don't shy away from it. And again, that's, that's now that's decades later, but when you were in your early twenties in your late teens in college and whatnot, you were trying out this whole thing of comedy and you decided, like you said, to go into writing. So even then when you weren't writing for yourself, was it still writing for you? Was it the same um, sort of coping? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's at a certain point you got to make a living, right? So um, it's more just like, I need to make a living. So this is the thing that I'm, I, that there is no barrier to entry other than can you do it or not? Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I had dropped out of school. I also knew, I also, one of the other reasons I dropped out of school is because I just knew nobody was going to give me a script when I was 21. And I, I was like, if I'm going to, if I'm going to shoot something, I'm going to have to write it. So, uh, in some ways, Half-Baked was like a senior thesis film, um, around, I mean, it was, would have been two years after I graduated, but, um, but that's not just, you know. So it was more just like, I got to make a living Mm -hmm. and I'm in this world. The only skills I have are a year's worth of film school and a, a, I would say an unrefined ability to write jokes. (laughs) Well, what's funny is, uh, so there's a joke in, in unacceptable where I said, uh, where I talk about the NRA and the, um, military. (laughs) I love that bit. Yeah. So that bit, I called Dave Chappelle when I thought of it, I don't know, a year and a half ago, two years ago. And I was like, hey, man, did anybody do this bit? And he goes, uh, you pitched that bit to me in 1993. <laughs> so 28 years later, it's finally going to see the light of day. Oh, it was one of the best parts of the show. It is I know. Very, it's very- one of those things. It's like, just, <laughs> I, I knew it. I just couldn't. I don't know. And like, that's that was the thing with with when you're writing for people it's very hard for them to do no one will just do a bit that it, it's like it what ends up happening when you're writing for people is like you add on to what they're already doing of course that would have been a completely separate thing than the kind of stuff dave was doing so he was like no he and he i don't think it was never that direct where i was like hey what will you do this bit it would just be like hey this could, could this be a bit like generally and then maybe you do it 
Um, or, but yeah, like that was a bit I thought of in 1993. And then finally, um, uh, you know, I don't know if it's cool. I mean, it's cool that you could use the joke now, but not cool that in 93, it's still applicable today. Well, back then it was more about, it was more about, uh, like the technology and then also, and that thing of the mil- of people hoarding weapons thing that they take on the military. It was about like, you know, like doomsday preppers and that type shit in the nineties. It was more like Waco people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Waco people have only have, uh, grown in, in numbers for sure. <laughs> like, uh, I think we should actually start the How Liberal Are You uh, reality show. (laughs) We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Speaking of the show, um, why off Broadway? Why why this show schedule? Because it's a it's a stand up it's a stand up routine that in theory you could put up in any show. Why New York? Why off Broadway? Uh, because of the theatrical element of the the you know based on three mics, I found that people with me part of it is. Um, It's like Chris Rock always says to me, like the reason you're at the party, there's a party in the, in the show that I talk about. The reason you're at the party is because of your vulnerability. He's like, you can write jokes as well as anybody, but like the vulnerability thing is like how I can get onto like the, the, uh, the, the guest list of a, of a, of a high level comedy party. Um, (laughs) Cause those guys can kill harder than me. Like Chris and Dave and you know, Bill Burr and Louie and those guys, like they get bigger laughs than me. But if you add on the vulnerability, I can kind of get closer to them in terms of strength. And, and you can't do that at a comedy club because everybody's, it's a more of a party atmosphere and every, and you have to have two drinks and there's a, you know, it's like, it's a party. It's a bar that it's a bar and fast food joint that you're talking at generally. Right. Is what a comedy club basically is. That's an interesting, really interesting thought process. Cause I, I, it never occurred to me that the theater audience, right? The New York theater audience is already coming because of who we are and where we are. We're coming to a show open to traveling on an emotional journey with what we're about to see. Yeah, that's the and and at a comedy club they'd be like, "Yo, what the fuck are you doing?" Whereas if you're in a theater, you your expectations are that you're there's going to be some emotional transportation. Yeah. And you and you take us there. It, and you 
you go down. I mean, it's it's very well crafted, right? Uh, the the serious moments coming back and taking us out, and 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 it's very it is very vulnerable. I guess that's the best way of of saying it is is I didn't ex, I didn't know what to expect, um, and I always try not to read about things or watch things before I know I'm going to go see them because I want to be surprised in the moment. And I don't even think you, even if somebody told you, I don't know, I still don't think you'd you know what to expect. You know no. what I mean? Like, other than it's kind of like three mics. Right, right. Well, it's because it's you. Right. right. But it's also emo in chunks. <laughs> yeah, 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 I guess so. But it, it never, for me, it never felt like, uh, I, I guess, a, I was going to say it never felt like a stand-up routine um, in, in what I call the traditional sense of stand-up. Because like you said, the atmosphere is different because you're in a show. Yes, it's, the atmosphere yeah, is different yeah. and which therefore makes me different and makes the, makes the whole thing different. It makes it, uh, makes it a monologue with a mostly funny, 80% funny, 20% revealing or dramatic or emotional. Right. Um, but that's kind of, I'm approaching it. I didn't do stand up in clubs for a few months before this. Cause I didn't want to get into that like snappy glib rhythm. Is it different for you too? Then when you're, when you're approaching the material, do you structure it together in a way that is more theatrical versus just here's a joke. Here's a punchline. Here's a joke. Punchline. Yeah, Cause I'm trying to, like with the stuff with the the my my relationship stuff, right? With women, mm-hmm. um, it is uh, it is it. I structure it like I'm not good at it, and it's a problem. Whereas when I used to do those jokes, some of the same jokes in clubs, it was just more like, yeah, men and women are different, <laughs> you know. And, and when it's like, well, what do I mean? What do I, what am I actually saying? What am I actually saying? What I'm actually saying is like, I'm not, I'm not good at this. And it's a real problem in my life. And it makes me feel alone and wrong. And like something like I'm broken. Mm-hmm. I would never say that in a place where people are drinking and partying and like, we're, it's, we're a bachelorette party. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, alcohol is a depressant anyway, so I guess well, you know, nobody knows that. <laughs> oh, right, right. Well, you know what's funny? I in the when I do my I do a joke about alcohol, right? The the whole weed bit, yeah, yeah. And like in clubs, it doesn't really work as well. Oh, that yeah, that makes total like sense. Me talking about their friend alcohol like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead serious. The other thing that happened, uh, that there's a there's a club in LA where I did practice the show. The bartender said they would get more drink orders right after. Really? Like it was people's way of like, ah, I'm not gonna uh, alcohol. I'm not gonna abandon you, just as this guy slagged you a little bit in the most basic way. Well, you're in California where weed is uh, abundant and legal, and oh, they did, of course. Yeah, that's weird. That's weird to me. As as not a drinker, I am completely on your side, and I'm not a and I'm a drink not a drinker by choice. It's it just never agreed with my body. I've never found anything that I liked. So yeah, Wait, when, I remember in high school go. I mean, drinking a lot and then going, I don't care if I ever drink again. 
Well, like, everybody's saying that. that to people, and then be like, "Really?" I mean, like, yeah, I just it's I can, but also the thing that I would rather do something sober than drunk. Like, if I do, if I think of something drunk, I'm like, "Nah, eh, I don't get full credit for that. I can't really fold that into my self esteem because I was, I it was like I was on the juice, you know." But isn't that your demon convincing you of that? Because some people can't, they'll, they'll say they can't think of anything when they're not like that. Yeah, but I don't, I, look, I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, it's, I don't like discount it that much. Cause, but, but I'd rather, uh, I'd rather, the, the stuff that people do that, that alcohol makes them do, I do professionally. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I could never, I'm going to say something crazy. I'm going to get drunk and say something crazy. It's like, I plan my life around saying crazy shit. <laughs> I plan my finances around saying crazy shit. So I can't, I'm not, I'm not, it's not like a, a, a departure for me. Right. Right. Well then where, where do you hope the show, the show continues to go? Cause it just got extended. It was supposed yeah. to have closed and popular demand, critical acclaim. And it's, it's been extended. So where where is the is the logical next step? Is it Netflix? Is it a who? Like- uh, yeah, there is a logical next step, but I'm gonna play it like an NBA player whose contract is up and say we're gonna cross that bridge after the season. <laughs> so you're gonna go play for the Mets? The yeah, Nets? the Nets, the Nets, the Mets, the Mets, the Nets, the Forty Niners. Yeah, they're yeah, all they're all the same thing. You right? are man, you are a theater guy. <laughs> I call it shooty hoops and piggy skins. That's what there all those go. guys are doing. Uh, well, good. I hope that maybe someday we will see you on the next contract, whatever network that contract takes you to. Um, and and in terms of of format, um, do you prefer more of the stand up, or do you prefer more the theatrical setting, like we were just talking about, or is it? Do you like to rotate? And so, is the next step just to go back and start writing for shows again? Yeah, I, I, the 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 I'm not gonna I'm not gonna write anymore. Like, if somebody wants me to, I mean, I the 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 level of of insulted I feel when someone watches me kill for an hour and a half and then goes, "You're gonna write something?" I'm like. Meanwhile, they're throwing movie parts at my peers and go like, so explain to me the difference. Do you know what I mean? Like, why why do I have to write? Whereas other people are like, we're going to give you a TV show. You want to play a doctor or whatever? Um, Whereas somehow I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm not allowed to get that. Um, So uh, I won't, and I also won't be writing for other people anymore, I don't think. Uh, I'm not even, I don't think. Occasionally, it would have to be a pretty. I'd have to really be friends with the person to uh, work with them. Interesting, like, you know, because I don't. For what I don't, but there are some people that I'll work. Like I work with Ellen on her last special, and she's. I wasn't friends with her before. I am now, but like, she's incredible. You know. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there are people I work with, Chris, I work with people like, like there's, I'm actually doing a documentary with Kevin Hart, like that I'm in. Can you believe it? (laughs) Um, Guys, I'm sorry. 
Uh, <laughs> are you guys mad that I'm going to be in some? I'm going to write it and be in it. No, just write. You're going to write. Um, and uh, yeah, everybody, I call writing doing the dishes. Um, <laughs> like, you come to a restaurant, but you got to do the dishes. Oh, okay. So I can't just be at the restaurant. Um, a lot of you, uh, Alan, you, you've hit a, you've hit a, you've touched a nerve here. Obviously. And, yeah. But I don't know, but why don't I, I am curious why you would say, are you going to go back to writing? Why would I go back to writing? Why would I write for somebody that I'm as funny as? The, the reason, oh, you're grinning a little, little grin there. The reason I ask that is simply because when, uh, when you, you were starting out, you were saying that you didn't, um, I guess, didn't know or you weren't doing as well on stage. And, and even in the show, you're talking about that, that am I good enough? Am I good enough? And, right. and so the question was simply whether or not uh, that was something that you were more comfortable doing, which is different from, it's from not, I mean, it's not even it. more comfortable. It's more comparing myself to, Eddie Murphy, Ellen, Dave, Chris, Kevin, Bill, Bur- you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. comparing myself to those people um, and feeling like I come up short. But uh, the rewards are worth the, the, the rewards of the laughter. And also I'm saying like, am I good enough to do this? By the way, I've just been killing for an hour and 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a trick where I'm like, it, and it's about how faulty my inner monologue is. Where right. even though I'm doing great, I'm like, hmm, what about them though? So, so I I appreciate where you're coming from, but the but from my point of view, it's like, well, why can you know? I just said Bill Burr like be on the Mandalorian, but like not you, Neil. I mean, I but I was in a Tom Hardy movie. I mean, I get parts uh, <laughs> from time to time, but yeah, for some reason, people, I'm not uncomfortable doing stand up. Well, I'm, do you, in fact, I'm more comfortable. I like it more. Do you prefer, uh, but do you prefer the stand up, the comedy club um, uh, area, or would you rather, like, you're, you kind of get your own genre of doing the theatrical comedy? Yeah, there aren't very many people. Mike Birbiglia, Hannah Gadsby, Hassan, uh, Hassan Minaj, um, I'm forgetting, Colin Quinn, a little bit less mm-hmm. dramatic, more structured. Um, and then Derek Delgadio, who directed my, who directed uh, Unacceptable, has a show called In and of Itself mm-hmm. um, on Hulu. That was he did off Broadway. Uh, that is, um, there's not a very long list of people. So I'll see what I'm inspired by. I don't set out to do these kinds of shows. It's just more like, oh, I have that idea, so let me pursue it. That's more what my life is. Is like having the idea and then going, Oh, let me try it. Which is not a bad thing to do. A lot of people, a lot of people won't even get that far. Well, I think a lot of people don't either don't get the idea or when they do, they don't know how to execute it or they don't think they're worth. They, I could never or any of that stuff. But the key is the, the, uh, the idea. Right. Right. We'll just see where it leads you. Really? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because I've tried several things and that I thought I started out doing one thing thinking it was going to lead to one thing and it didn't even come close to that. And then along the way, fork on the road, which has completely changed your life. You meet somebody, you go to a venue, you, you see something else, you learn a new skill and everything's completely different and unplanned. So yeah, 
but I think it it helps if you what is it uh uh fate favors the bold something favors the bold fake it till you um, make it uh yeah, but uh, no it's not even fake it till you make it because I think that that's there's a level of uh duplicity or or like you're faking it or that's not true that it's like you're trying you know i live in la so fake until you make it is a whole different meaning out there it's like lamborghinis and people that are you know just in living and living at they have a they have a they have a two hundred thousand dollar car and an eleven hundred dollar apartment yeah um so like more just like take chances and and see Pursue things for their own sake and I like see that. where they end up. I like that. Well, everybody visit unacceptableshow.com. Get your tickets to see the show. It's freaking hilarious. And so is Neil because he is the show. <laughs> where can we find you online on the social medias? Uh, just my name, Neil Brennan on Instagram and Neil Brennan on uh, Twitter. Awesome. And I believe it's Mr. Neil Brennan on TikTok. Oh, you're on the Tiki Talks. Well, yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying, man. I'm, you know, look, at a certain point, I'm just going to have to like let some of these ships sail. Yeah. But, you know what? TikTok, not, <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there's three closing questions I ask everybody to wrap up the right. episodes. The first one, just very simply, is what motivates you? Um, Insecurity and competition. All right. Next one. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? Just, I mean, if you're going to be a comedian, you got to write jokes. That's the, the, the thing that nobody points out. And I would say it's disappointing because it's incredibly hard is the Hall of Fame of comedy all were wrote reams of jokes um you know louie dave chris rock bill burr bill cosby woody allen ellen sarah silverman wanda sykes um you know joan rivers especially joan rivers had uh, in the documentary about her she's got those library files of jokes Mm -hmm. you know like probably a hundred thousand jokes and that's what it takes honestly wow that's the the name of your memoir a hundred thousand jokes is what it. i mean basically like you gotta write yeah Chappelle. dave always says uh all he remembers about the show was me going Chappelle. we gotta write (laughs) (laughs) like fuck you man yeah uh, okay, so the last question is then if you can only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? Broadway? Is that what you're talking? Um, well, for you, expand it to any any show that you've ever that you've seen that you know of. Meaning television? Or stand-up routine oh. or Broadway. Any anything you would call a show. Uh, we'll go um Sopranos, just because it's the only series I think I've watched in its entirety that I can remember. Not Breaking Bad. Never watched it. What? I it's a I have a controversial opinion about Breaking Bad. Oh, now I got it. I found 
uh, Aaron Paul's character in the first season uh, unbearable. Meaning, because he was doing like a black adjacent hip hop white guy, mm. and as a hip hop white guy, I was like, no, nah. I I reject it. It was I know it was bad. It was kind of intentionally bad, but I couldn't tell if it was intentionally bad or he was bad. <laughs> and he well, kept saying bitch, which reminded me, which I felt a little responsible for from Chappelle show, and it was embarrassing to me. Well, you got to say it like like he does. You got to go, bitch. Yeah, I know, but it was like I don't like it. Well, you know, he was. And I also he, didn't like the flashbacks to when he was a teacher. I just thought they were shot weird and like pools of light and like this yearning for another teacher it was just odd. I just didn't. It like didn't work to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, Aaron Paul's character was supposed to die at the end of the first season. Oh, that's interesting. I think he came to the show. I'm not sure. Well, it was, he was supposed I, I to... I never heard back from him, so... Yeah, he was supposed to die, the character was, but then the producers loved the chemistry between him and uh, Aaron and Brian Cranston so much that they wrote him into the whole series. Good for him. I the, Again, another way in which I feel like something's wrong with me. <laughs> well, I don't think you had anything to do... Well, there's something wrong with you, but you gave him, you gave him his catchphrase, so just... Well, I know, but I also feel like... Uh, uh, I'm happy to admit that I'm wrong about about uh, Breaking Bad. Like I'm the the Better Call Saul's great. I'm sure Breaking Bad's great. I'm sure I just it caught me at the wrong time. But I don't. I would never like slag it intentionally. That I'm just telling you how I processed it. Me personally, I couldn't get past those things. Well, now I want to do a whole part two to this episode and talk about all my favorite shows. What about Battlestar Galactica? Never saw an episode do a joke about it, though. Used to do a joke about it uh, where my buddy, who's like uh, my, my friend Mike Schur, who created Parks and Rec and, and Good Place, and, but was like a Battlestar Galactica fiend, and he would always tell me to watch it, and I used to do a joke about it, which was like, I'm not going to watch it because I don't give a fuck about space problems. <laughs> <laughs> but enough, there's enough earth problems that I don't I don't give I don't give a fuck about quirks and you know bing bong speeds and Cylons and don't care. Well, that's that's good and it doesn't have Aaron Paul in it. Yeah, but again, somebody could say like I don't like Sopranos and give me a bunch of reasons like da 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 like yeah, and that's a fair criticism. Well, I've you never know, seen Sopranos. Like I've never seen Sopranos, so Really? Yeah, really. It's very good. That's all I would tell you. All I know is that at the last bit, they just end it in the middle of a sentence. The last yeah, episode. But yeah, I, to me, they never made a bad choice on that show. Even the bad episodes, I thought were great. What about Lost? Uh, I saw the first one. Thought it was very well shot. Never watched it again. I don't really like narrative shows. Like, like I like sketches. I like. Uh, I'm halfway through um, uh, Fleabag because I like that it's a short it's a small serving size yeah um but i can't do this on like when someone goes you got 80 hours of homework to do like no i don't i'm not doing it i don't like like i did jerry seinfeld's comedians and Garth. i've only seen maybe four or five seinfelds like and i told him that like i just don't just doesn't i don't like sitting down and watching oh, oh the jacket yeah yeah well not speaking of john mulaney then what about big mouth never seen it. 
That's funny. I've seen, uh, you know what? I can't say I've never seen it. I've seen bits of it. And Kroll's a friend of mine and John's a friend of mine. I just, uh, I don't, I don't know. It's like, I just don't like shows. Like if they, I've seen way more Kroll show sketches than Big Mouth. I just don't like, whenever I watch Big Mouth, I'm impressed with uh, how musical it is and how dirty it is. They can get away with a, with a ton of dirt. Because it's, yeah. it's a cartoon. You got yep. di- dicks and everything all over the place. Yep. <laughs> anyway. All right. So we have digressed to a wonderful level. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation. Find me online at Theater Podcast on Instagram and Twitter, Facebook. I'm on a slash official theater podcast. Leave a reading and review. This has been edited by Well-Rounded Hoodlum Productions. Thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. And everybody, please go see Unacceptable by Neil Brennan down at the Cherry Lane Theater. It is so damn funny. Unacceptableshow.com. Get your tickets now because who knows where it's going to be next. And you want to see this in person. It's so good. It's going to disappear. Thank you, Poof. Yeah. It's gone. Thank you, Neil, so much. Yeah, good to meet you, brother. Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.